Father, again, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you, Lord, especially for all the dads. We thank you, Father, for who you've made them to be and for what you have called them to be. And we pray for them, Lord. We pray that you would give them strength, that you would give them courage, that you would help them, Lord, to look to you for their strength, for their courage. We ask, Father, that you would continue uh, to lead and guide all of their families through them, but that it would be you who empowers, that it would you, be you who provides, that it would be you, Lord, who continues to uphold the families of our church through their dads. And we thank you, God, that it is through your word that you continue to teach us and guide us and lead us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would, as we open up your word this morning, uh, continue to speak to us by your spirit. Would you be the one to convict? Would you be the one to encourage? Would you be the one to motivate our hearts, our minds? And help us, Lord, as we even live in this dark world, to just for this moment look up to you and once again see you for who you truly are, great and mighty, sitting on your throne. Would you glorify yourself? Would you glorify Jesus Christ through your word this morning? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, which says this. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, at first glance, this passage might seem a little bit confusing. But I think as we begin to see these verses in their context, it will start to make more sense. So to help us in our understanding, let's look back to verses 1 through 6, which we talked about three weeks ago. Uh, the first thing we need to remember is that in these verses, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's speaking to his followers. He's speaking to people uh, just like you and me. In contrast to his disciples, Jesus was previously talking to, in chapter 16, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish leaders of the day whom Jesus rebuked severely. They were self-centered money-hungry, hypocritical, prideful teachers of the Jewish law who were leading Israel astray, away from God instead of towards him. And in chapter 16, Jesus warned the Pharisees of the consequences of their sin, that if they did not repent, they were all doomed. They were doomed and destined to hell. That was the end of chapter 16. And now in the beginning of chapter 17, Jesus turns his attention, his focus, onto his disciples and basically, he's giving them a stern warning, saying, pay attention to yourselves. Beware. Be careful. Do not be like the Pharisees. And as we learned three weeks ago, Jesus is warning his disciples in verses 1 and 2, do not be a stumbling block to other believers. Be careful to teach only the word of God and to defer to the needs of our weaker brothers so as not to cause them to stumble. The Pharisees were doing the exact opposite. They were putting stumbling blocks in the path of God's people by leading them astray with man-made rules and regulations and bad theology and then expecting everyone 
to live up to their faulty standards. And then in verse 3 to 4, Jesus tells his disciples to take sin seriously and be ready and willing to forgive and forgive and forgive and to seek restoration in your relationships. Again, the Pharisees would never do this. Instead, they would, in their pride, condemn and condemn and condemn and condemn and reject and look down upon those whom they deemed were not measuring up to their man-made rules and regulations. And then in verse 5 and 6, when the disciples cry out to Jesus, we cannot follow these commands. Lord, this is too hard. We need more faith. Jesus teaches them that it is not the amount of faith that matters but it's God's power working through even a small grain of mustard seed faith that can do the impossible because it's all about God and his power and not about us and our works. Again, a foreign concept to the Pharisees. And so this is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in verses 5, verses 1 through 6 about what it means to be a disciple and not to be like the Pharisees, which leads us now to our passage today in verses 7 through 10. Let's read this once again. It's very short. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now you might be thinking, how does this parable of an unworthy servant fit within the context of what we just talked about in verses 1 through 6? You know, it's almost as though this seems like a a tacked-on parable, that it just pops up out of nowhere, kind of out of place in Luke's narrative. Well, that's what I thought at first, too. But as I began to study and I began to learn from other teachers and commentators, I came to see that this is very appropriate for Jesus to bring this up precisely here in exactly this way because it speaks directly to the problem of spiritual pride that can arise in the hearts of his disciples even as they are trying to follow Jesus' commands. And we're not talking about the obvious, I'm better than you kind of pride that the Pharisees had. No, we're talking about a much more subtle, even hidden form of spiritual pride that because it's not so obvious can almost be more dangerous to our souls. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And because of this deceitfulness, If we are not careful, a very subtle but insidious spiritual pride can arise in all of our hearts. Even as we are trying our best to not cause others to stumble, even as we forgive and forgive and forgive our brothers who sin against us, even as we turn to God in faith and trust Him to do the impossible, even as we are humbling ourselves, diminishing ourselves, humbling our hearts before God on this side, if we're not careful, there is another side of our hearts that is getting filled up with spiritual pride. Why? Because even though people might not see it on the outside, the pride is still in here. 
And so Jesus is trying to address that through this parable. It's like, think about it like this. It's like a half-filled rubber ducky, the flotation device that our kids play with at the pool. It might, it might look empty and all squishy, but when you press down on the tail, the head suddenly pops up. And when you push down on the head, the tail puffs up. It does this because even though it might look deflated and empty, it's really not empty. And the same goes with the pride within us. We might humbly defer to the needs of our weaker brother. We might humbly forgive those who sin against us. But all the while, another part of our heart is secretly getting puffed up with a spiritual pride. Do you see all the things that I'm doing for God? Do you have any idea how hard it is for me to do these things? Why am I the only one that has to make all these sacrifices? I hope everyone in here appreciates it. You see, if we're not careful, and if we lose sight of how deceptive the human heart is, we may think that we are being humble and diminishing ourselves so that we can serve others, but in actuality, and perhaps even without us even knowing it, we are doing these things in order to build ourselves up. Brothers and sisters, I'm speaking from my own personal experience. And I don't say this out of false humility. This is what I call cringe-worthy self-analysis. Sometimes when I look into my own heart, what I find there is downright disgusting. And I share this somewhat unashamedly with you because I think we all struggle with this. We all need to look into our hearts and dig out the pride that we find there. Now, spiritual pride may not be as obvious as what I just described. For many of us, it takes more pressure to cause this kind of pride to surface. We have to squeeze that rubber ducky a little bit harder. But when it does get squeezed, through financial trials, through health concerns, through family strife, when things get really tough and stressful and painful, that's when this pride rises up and we begin to question God. Lord, I've been working so hard for you. I keep giving and giving and giving and making all these sacrifices for you. So what is going on? Why are you not blessing me? Spiritual pride does not show itself only in self-centeredness and selfishness. It also raises its ugly head in self-pity. And so when the pressure comes, we question God and ask, Why me, God? as though our good works have somehow earned us a free pass or makes us believe that somehow God owes us. We expect things from him when we should not. We begin to believe that all our hard work and sacrifice has somehow put God into our debt. But is that really how it is? I don't think so. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything. And I think this is what Jesus is trying to address in this parable. Look again at our passage starting in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? 
To make his point in this parable, Jesus is using the relationship between a master and his servant, and he is appealing to simple, common sense. During Jesus' time, it was not uncommon for people to have a servant whose job basically was to work for and serve his master. Now, this is not a parable about slavery, by the way, uh, and it is not something that we are trying to focus on and get hung up about this issue of slavery. Rather, Jesus is bringing up a very common situation in that time that would have been well understood, hence his use of the phrase, will any one of you? In other words, any one of you should know this. It should be very clear to anyone who has a servant who comes in from the field after plowing or keeping the sheep, the master is not going to have the servant come and sit down at the table to feed and meet the servant's needs first. That's just not how it worked in that era, and everybody knew it. The servant is there to serve and not to be served. And the expectation is that even after a long day of work in the dirty fields, plowing or keeping the sheep, there should be no expectation on the servant's part that now the master somehow owes him a relaxing dinner. And the master should be so grateful so as to serve the servant first and thank him for everything the servant has done. Rather, it's just the opposite. The master's expectation, and everyone's expectation for that matter, is that the servant, even after a long, hard day of work, will come in from the field, prepare a meal, then get himself cleaned up, and then serve his master dinner. And then, after he has finished all of his duties, only then can the servant eat and drink. That is what a servant does. And in Jesus' time, it was well understood that there was no expectation that the master would somehow be indebted to the servant for simply doing his job, doing what was expected of him. Notice in Jesus' parable, the master doesn't even owe the slave a simple thank you because everyone, including the servant, knew that he was only doing what he was supposed to do. And that is exactly what is expected of those who claim to follow Christ, those who are servants of Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying in this parable. The word servant or slave, which is the Greek word doulos, was one of the Apostle Paul's favorite ways to describe himself. Mary, the mother of Jesus, describes herself as a doulos in Luke chapter 1. James, the brother of Jesus, describes himself as a doulos in his book. If we claim to follow Christ, we must recognize that we are all servants, a doulos, a slave of the Lord. And so as we live out the Christian life, obeying God and following his commands, putting others' others' needs ahead of our own, considering others as more important than ourselves, forgiving those who sin against us, turning the other cheek, being generous, cheerful givers, honoring our fathers and mothers, submitting to husbands, loving our wives as Christ loves the church, giving up lustful passions and greed and desires, whatever the good deed, whatever the sacrifice made, whatever the effort that was required, whatever God commands us to do, we're not doing anything special and worthy of praise. Remember, brothers and sisters, we are but servants, slaves of the Most High, doing only what we have been commanded to do, doing only what is expected of us. 
There is no place for spiritual pride or any kind of pride for that matter in the heart of a servant of Jesus Christ. And with this parable, Jesus is trying to kill any notion of that in his disciples. Figuratively, he's draining all the air out of the rubber ducky. And he's doing this to warn his disciples not to be like the Pharisees who were so full of spiritual pride that they believed that in doing all of their good works that they were somehow better than other people and that they deserved to be treated as such. Listen to how Jesus describes the Pharisees in Matthew 23. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Jesus is saying, don't be this way. Rather, Jesus says, the greatest among you must be your servant. Christian, this is who we are. We are servants of our master, Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus himself said should be our mindset. Look again at verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus is laying out here everything that God has commanded you to do. And by the way, how many of us, even after we've done everything that God has commanded us, how many of us can honestly say that we actually did everything that Jesus commanded us? But even if we did, we are still to come before him and say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty now, the Greek word for unworthy can also be rendered useless. We are useless servants. But this does not refer to our inherent worth, meaning that we have no value. Rather, when he uses the word useless, it's useless in terms of function, meaning that it is unneeded, lacking utility or usefulness, which means that, when God, that God does not need anything from us. There is no lack in God that he needs us to fill. We need to recognize and understand this, that we are indeed unworthy, useless, unprofitable servants or slaves. This is what Jesus is telling us in this parable. Now, does this sound somewhat harsh? That you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are useless, unworthy slaves? Well, perhaps we need to let that thought sink in and simmer in our minds for just a moment. In fact, perhaps we should just end the sermon here. It might be good for some of us, including myself, it might be good to feel the weight and the heaviness and the conviction of our own unworthiness. It could be a good thing that we, like the disciples in Jesus' time, need to be reminded of our place before a holy, righteous, perfect creator God. You know, in our small group this past Tuesday, uh, we were discussing last week's sermon about the dangers of drifting away from God. And as we were discussing the sermon, one of our small group members, Kyung Min, well, well, let's not use his real name, let's just call him Frank. Frank said that he used to have a t-shirt 
that said, Jesus is my homeboy, meaning that Jesus is my pal. He's, he's my best friend. He's one of my peers. And Frank said that although he understands the meaning behind the T-shirt, that Jesus is relatable, that he's with us, that he understands us as a friend, now that he old, he's older, Frank realizes that that kind of familiarity with the Lord, Jesus is my homeboy, is also a bad thing because it shows we've lost our sense of healthy fear of God's majesty and his greatness. You know, we often talk about how much God loves us and how much he cares for us, and that's all good and true and right. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But how often do we put ourselves into proper perspective before a holy God that we are but unworthy slaves? That is also true and good and right. And I think it is good to think about and contemplate the infinite chasm that exists between creator and creature. We don't do this enough to feel the weight and heaviness and the conviction of our own unworthiness. Let's pray. Just kidding. We're not ending there. As important as I think it is, to think about and to contemplate these things. That's not where we are going to leave things today. Because just as much as it is important for us to be reminded that we are but humble servants, we also need to remember why. Why should we be humble? Why should we take on the attitude of a humble servant? It's because this is what Jesus did. Jesus, our Lord, came to serve. And as children of God, we need to strive to be like Jesus. Romans 8 tells us, and this is a paraphrase, that God has adopted us and brought us into his family. He has from eternity past known and predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, if you are a Christian... Someone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ know that God has chosen you and that he has given you new life so that you might be transformed into the image of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, so that you might take on the family likeness of God. And so our obedience to God's commands is not only our expected duty as unworthy slaves, our obedience is more importantly the process and the means by which we are taking on the family likeness and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. We have been given Jesus Christ as our role model and as our teacher, and we have the privilege and honor to follow and emulate him as he shows us how to live and to love as a servant. Can you imagine if you were a young basketball player and you were given Steph Curry or LeBron James as your personal teacher and coach, but that's nothing, that's nothing compared to what we have. We have been given Jesus Christ as our model and as our teacher. And Jesus didn't just command his disciples, go, live like humble servants. No. He showed them. He shows us by becoming a servant himself. 
In Luke 22, when the disciples are arguing amongst themselves about which one of them is the greatest, Jesus poses the question to them, who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You see, the world believes it's the people that are served that are the greatest. But what does Jesus say? What does the greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth say? He says, I am one who serves. And in Matthew 20, when James and John were foolishly trying to convince Jesus through their mom, no less, to sit at his right and left hand when he comes into his kingdom, I mean, talk about spiritual pride. Do you see why Jesus had to deal with this issue? Even his disciples who lived with him continuously struggled with it. In response to this prideful request, Jesus teaches them, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The great people in the kingdom of God are those who humble themselves, who recognize their unworthiness, those who are servants. For as God says in Isaiah 66 too, this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The Apostle Paul also teaches something very similar in Philippians 2 when he says this, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a doulos. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself so that he could serve us by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there anything God has commanded you to do that is harder, that is more difficult than what he asked of his very own Son to do for us? Absolutely not. Jesus has done everything for us. He has taken our sins upon himself and died so that we can be forgiven and saved from an eternity in hell. He owes us nothing. We owe him everything. And our scripture passage this morning reminds us that we are useless, unworthy, unprofitable slaves. That we are not the ones who are served, but we are the ones who are expected to serve. And, but even in our best attempts to live a godly life that doesn't cause others to stumble, that seeks to forgive those who uh, sin against us, that cries out for more faith that, uh, so that we might be able to obey God more, even in our best attempts, Jesus tells us, we are only doing our duty as unworthy slaves. And if that is all that we take away from our sermon this morning, that's probably enough to keep us humble and not be filled with spiritual pride like the Pharisees. But I hope the real lesson that we take away today is the reason why we are to be humble 
and the reason why we have no business being filled with spiritual pride. And it is because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave us an example of what it means to live and to love as a servant of God and as adopted children of the King. We ought to strive with all of our might to become more and more like Jesus. Now, Luke chapter 12, and I'll close with this. Jesus is warning his disciples to be ready for his second coming, for when he returns as the king. And he says this, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, meaning Jesus, will dress himself for service and have them, we, his disciples, he'll have us recline at table and then he will come and serve us. Brothers and sisters, we have a Savior who lives and who has died in humble service to us. And one day he will return and when he does, he will once again invite us to his table And he will come and serve us. So now, in the short time that we have left here on this earth, let us, as his disciples, go forth and do the same for others. Let's pray for real this time. Father, again, we thank you. We thank you for your holy word, Lord, that continues to teach us more and more about who you are. That it is by your spirit, Lord, that you help us to understand that it is because of you and all that you have done that we have even begun to be in a relationship with you that we might call you Father. And we pray, Father, that even as you would sometimes Speak to us in ways that might seem harsh. We know, God, that it is because you love us so deeply. We know that it is because you desire us to become more and more like Jesus, your son, that we might take on the family resemblance, that we might, too, also walk in this earth as servants, loving each other, forgiving each other, not causing one another to stumble, seeking you in faith, so that we, as the body of Christ, might be seen by the outside world as those who know Jesus, those who have been in contact with the Son of God, and that they might be drawn to you as well. Would you use us, Father? Would you equip us? Would you strengthen us? And would you continue to go forth with us in everything that we do so that we might bring glory and honor to your name? We love you so much, and we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.